Good morning, Harvest. Thank you to each and every one of you for joining us online this morning to worship together. So thankful for this opportunity to share God's word with you uh, in your house. Uh, this is still new and different for all of us. Uh, our second Sunday exclusively online, but one thing that is not gonna change, that will never change, is we're gonna open up God's word and we're gonna study it together this morning. So if you don't have a Bible, if you forgot to grab one before you sat down this morning, then just put your hand up in the air. No, we don't have ushers that are gonna knock on your front door, but chances are you actually have an usher team in your house. You may refer to them as your children or your husband or your wife at some point, but try it out, throw your hand up in the air, see if somebody will bring you a Bible. If, if you're watching alone, perhaps on your MacBook, another way you can do it is Command-T, open up a new web browser window, get Psalm 118, that's where we're gonna be this morning, get that along beside you. If you're operating on a Windows computer, then just scroll on down and submit a prayer request. Uh, know that we feel your pain, and uh, we'll be praying for you this morning. <laughs> All jokes aside, hey, today is a, we're in this crazy season where everything seems to have changed. Nothing's certain, uh, but I want to study with you this morning in Psalm 118, the steadfast, never-changing, certain love of God and how we can be grounded and secure in God, how that can be a reality for all of us today. I love how this psalm starts. One of my first jobs I had was working in a coffee shop and um, taking orders from people. And we were always trained as people entered the cafe, you would look at them, smile, make eye contact, say, hey, how are you doing today? And usually that would initiate a completely pointless conversation that you'd have the same convo like 300, 350 times uh, in one day. Hey, how are you? Oh, I'm good, thanks, how are you? Oh, I'm good too. Oh, that's good that you're good. And then you finally get all the niceties out of the way and it would be, what can I do for you today? But sometimes it'd be a person that as you ask them, hey, how are you doing? They just completely ignore your question and just say, small coffee. And you'd be like, oh. Okay, all right, we're not doing the formalities, here we go, and, uh, but here's the thing, I, I actually love those people because in the crazy chaotic, chaotic days when it was like 50 drinks uh, waiting to be made, somebody's wanting to change the order, drive throughs backing up, it was just, okay, perfect, tell me what to do and let's go. Uh, I picked this Psalm 118 to share because I feel like it's this kind of Psalm for us this morning. It starts off by saying this, it says, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Uh, it starts off, says, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Listen, how many times in our lives, let's be honest, would even just the first half of this verse cause us to, to question and wrestle? How many times do we have to admit and say, I I'm not really seeing the Lord's goodness right now? And maybe for you, it's because of what's happening in our world at the moment. Maybe it's closer to home, maybe it's a broken marriage, maybe it's poor health or bad test results that are coming, maybe it's just feeling like, you know what, I've tried everything, I've always tried to put my best foot forward, and I just feel like, I just feel like life would have been in a better spot for me today. Maybe you're like, I'm not sure if I wanna give thanks or I have much to be thankful for. Some of us are maybe closed up in our homes right now, maybe you're battling worry, fear, anxiety, perhaps loneliness or uncertainty. Perhaps this whole kind of social distancing and isolating thing is kind of magnifying a bit of our family dysfunction that we didn't realize. And maybe we're asking ourselves, well, what are we supposed to do in this season? Well, here's what Psalm 118 tells us to do. If you know anything about Psalm, if you know anything about Psalm 118, you'll know that most scholars contribute it to have been written by King David. And David himself was a, was a man who had great highs in his life and also great lows. Times when he was... Uh, when he was isolated, when he was rejected by his fellow uh, countrymen, uh, where he had to hide out in caves because people were seeking to take his life, went through great trials. But in this psalm, he still celebrates the goodness and the steadfastness of God. Here's the reason why. Here's the reason why we're to praise the Lord and give thanks to him, because it says this. It says, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
34 times in the psalm, this term is used, his steadfast love endures forever. And so the question is, how do we experience that today, the steadfast love of the Lord? Because we need something that's steadfast, that's true, that's certain, that's not changing. In verse 2, he goes on, he says this, Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say that his steadfast love endures forever. He says, let Israel say it. That was God's chosen nation uh, in the Old Testament times. He says, let the house of Aaron say it. They were the priests that would go in and, and be reminded daily of God's mercy and grace as they would offer sacrifices. But then he casts the net wide and he says, let those who fear the Lord say it. And that's open to all of us. He said that his steadfast love endures forever. What God so desperately wants us to know and reveals it and speaks it out time and time again is, is that his love is steadfast. Now, there's a key defining statement in there. Who are the people who get to experience this love? Did you catch it in verse 4? It says, those who fear the Lord. And so I've called this message, Fearing the Lord and Experiencing His Love. Because that's the relationship we're going to see this morning. This is how it becomes a reality for us. Maybe you're like, Godfrey, I tuned in today because I'm fearful of what's happening already. I've got tons of fear in my life. Now you're telling me I need to fear God? Well, yes, but here's the thing. God, God's word tells us that when we live in a fear of the Lord, that all other fears are cast out. Second Timothy 1 tells us that we, when we come to know God, he gives us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. First John tells us that perfect love, his steadfast love, casts out all fear. Now, in case you think I'm, I'm getting a little carried away in the text here, like really, there's that strong a link between fearing the Lord, you have to fear the Lord to experience his steadfast love. It's all over scripture. Let me give you a couple of examples. Psalm 33, verse 18 says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Psalm 103, 17 says, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Psalm 147, 11 says, But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. You see it? If you want to experience God's steadfast love, you must fear the Lord. And maybe you ask, why? Well, what does it even mean to fear the Lord? Well, to flesh this out, I, I want to do something. I want to ask you a question this morning. What are you fearful of right now? What do you fear? What would be your greatest nightmare, so to speak? Now, for some of us, as we think about that, maybe it's a fear of getting sick, fear of being humiliated, embarrassed, having to speak publicly, get on, up on stage, uh, get recorded, like I'm embracing my fear right now, fear of losing our finances, fear of your marriage falling apart, Whatever it is for you, maybe it's something silly, even like fear is created when we aren't in control. So here's what we do. We work so hard at controlling everything. We have a plan. We have a plan for our business, for our career, for our bank account, for our health, our relationships, circle of friends, grades at school, image, our bodies. The list could go on. And what we do is we all put time and energy into these things. And actually we define life as good when it seems like we're in control of that. When everything seems to be working out, that's when we say, yeah, life is good. I don't have anxiousness. I, I'm not living in worry or fear. How we begin to experience the steadfast love of God is when we fear the Lord, because to fear the Lord means that we realize that it's actually God who is in control. So to fear the Lord and experience his love, we must realize, I'm going to pull out four things this morning. The first thing is this, is that God is in control. The Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's saying we should come into this fear of God in a good and healthy way because what that means is we're understanding that he is in control. 
We're seeing this right now. It doesn't matter how hard we work, the stock market could tank and we could lose it all. It doesn't matter how hard you work at controlling other people's opinions of yourself or your image, people are gonna talk behind your back and form their own opinions. It doesn't matter how many times you go to the gym, work out, go vegan, grow your own root vegetables, like rub essential oils on yourself, whatever you do to take care of yourself, at some point your body is gonna fail you and you'll die. No matter how desperately we strive for perfection, we're always, we'll always be imperfect. How many of us thought we had a pretty sure thing going right now that we were in control until this coronavirus turned up, this microscopic virus we can't even see and we're trying to figure out how to control it and, and it's caused so many of us to be wrought with fear. I believe God in his grace allows things like this to happen to draw us near to him, to expose the, the fragility of the things that we would build our lives upon and to draw us into a steadfast love. Because whenever we fear God, whenever we actually realize that God is in control, whenever that becomes a reality in your life, whenever that's a truth that you remind yourself of daily, what else do you have to fear? We don't have to live in a fear of anything else in this world because God is in control over all of it. This is what David realizes in our Psalm today. In verse five, he says, out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. You see, when we fear the Lord, it says we have nothing else to fear. When we fear the Lord, any other fear, any other thing that threatens to encroach in on us that would cause us to go to worry or anxiety, what do we do with it? We take it to the one who's in control. You see what David said? He said, out of my distress, he said, out of my distress, this is what I did. So hear me well, as Christ followers, as Christians, it doesn't mean that we'll never be afraid. It doesn't mean we'll never be fearful. It doesn't mean we won't have times of anxiousness. So many times God calls us to cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. It means that what we do with it when we experience it, we take it to God who is in control. God promises to work out everything for the good of those who love him. And so is that a promise that you can rest in as you bring your life onto that? You say, I'm gonna trust in God, why? Because he's in control. And this is where we get just straight up wisdom now. In verses eight and nine, he says, better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. Better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Well, what is refuge? Well, you think of a refugee status somebody gets when a country offers someone refuge. It's shown that if they went back to their own country, they would be maybe persecuted, maybe even put to death. They'd be in a place of serious distress, and so they're offered a refuge. And so David here says for us, better for us in our distress, in our times of trouble, to take refuge in God rather than man, i.e. ourselves or other people. Better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes, government, and authorities. The question for you this morning is, as we get into God's word, who, who or what is your refuge? When your health is in distress, when finances, relationships, rebellious kids, maybe your reputation, whatever it is, whenever you are in distress, where do you find your refuge? Where are you seeking to find shelter? See, how we naturally want to deal with fear, our built-in reaction is one of two things. We generally, we go to fight or we flight. That's how we gain security. That's, how, well, that's what we do to gain refuge. We either stand up to say, I'm going to take control or I'm going to run. If it's our health, uh, maybe our fight reaction is, I I'm going to start eating right, exercising right, get the right meds into my body. I'll get to a place where I'm in control again. For our finances, maybe it's I'll work harder, save more, maybe even risk more to get me back to this place where I'm in control. 
If it's a relationship that's strained or fear of abandonment or unfaithfulness, maybe it's like, I'm just gonna control everything you do, everything they say, I'm gonna keep tabs on that person 24 seven. I'm gonna control my way out of this situation. For some of us, our, our flight reactions, our reactions to run, is that I don't wanna to go to the doctor. Like, I'm just gonna live in denial, everything's fine. Don't talk to me about finances. I'm not gonna open that bank statement. Let's just keep spending and just pretend everything's okay. Or my relationship is too hard to deal with. Can we just go on playing happy families? Or maybe actually our flight, our running, is we run to the arms of someone or something else to find value and acceptance. Everything in our strength tells us to fight or flight under fear, to watch out for ourselves, to get us back to this place where we can say we're in control. But all it does is it leads to places of more worry, fear, quarrels, and arguments on rest as we seek to, to gain control. James 4 talks about it. He says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that you, your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. But here's what a godly response looks like. Here's what it looks like to take refuge in God. In James 4, it goes on, he says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It says, humble yourself under the Lord and he will exalt you. The world tells us, our hearts tell us, stand up, fight through it, or run away to something else. What God calls us to do is to lay down, to surrender, to submit and, and draw near. You catch what, what that is? It's the opposite to fight or flight. It's surrender, submit, and draw near, come close. So this is why fear is important. Uh, this is why what we do with fear matters because where we operate out of fear shows us what we're relying on, where we're relying on our own efforts and not trusting in God. In times of fear, who you run to shows who your savior is. It shows where you're seeking to gain control by gaining, by gaining more power to control. David here fears God, he runs to God, and he finds refuge in him, strength, peace, security, by, how? by coming low, by surrendering to God. Because he admits that God is in control, but here's what else he sees. He, he sees that God is all-powerful. So that's our second point, to fear the Lord and experience his love. We have to recognize that God is all-powerful. God is more powerful than anything that can come against us. Listen to what David says about his greatest hours of trial as he recounts his life. Verse 10, he says, All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. He says, I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. When everything was crashing down around him, when nations surrounded him, when chaos was abounding, like a swarm of bees, like no escaping it, when life was a raging fire of thorns, when David says he himself was falling, it was completely out of control, the Lord was in control and the Lord was moving in power because he is an all-powerful God. All of those verses, David is magnifying, I didn't have control, I didn't have power, I didn't have a way out, I didn't have a safety net or a backup plan, but he says, the Lord delivered me. He says, I was delivered by the name of the Lord. 
I cried out to God and it was he who delivered me time and time again. Each time he actually says, I had nothing to offer. He says, so in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Now it seems kind of weird. It seems almost like a bit of an oxymoron that, that David says there. You're like, excuse me, wait, what did he just call us? Like, rewind that back. What's an oxymoron? Is that like a laundry detergent? No, no, oxymoron, it's when you make a statement of two conflicting things that, that seem like they contradict, contradict each other. They shouldn't go together. And on the surface, it seems like that because David says, I had nothing to offer. I was completely helpless, out of control. But then he says, so I cut them off. As if it's kind of like, was that David who figured it out? No, what David's saying is, I was all out of control, no power, so I appealed to the one who was all powerful and in control. I cried out to God and he delivered me. Listen, a fear of the Lord should drive us to prayer, to call upon the name of the Lord, to come to our God through Jesus Christ in complete surrender to him where we say, you're our hope, you're our deliverer, you're our ever-present help in times of trouble, God. Knowing it's him that upholds the universe by the word of his power, it's him who gives us our next breath, it's him who provides... It's him who protects, it's him who delivers. Now look at what David's able to say in verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. As David surrendered his attempts of power, control, and gave them to God, seeing him as the all-powerful, in-control God, here's a sweet thing that happened. God became his refuge and his deliverer. He began to experience the steadfast love of God. He says, glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. He says, I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but the Lord has not given me over to death. David here time and time again recounts of how God graciously and mercifully brought him to the end of himself to a place where he was falling so that he could actually experience the steadfast love of God to a place where he sees God's hand, his deliverance. He talks about his valor, his work, God's control and power and defeat of the enemy. And he actually describes this as the Lord's gracious discipline upon his life. In verse 18, he says, the Lord disciplined me severely, but he said he hasn't given me over to death. Listen, for David, victory with the Lord meant humble surrender to the Lord. And until you truly surrender to God, who's in control, who's all-powerful, until you fear God, your life will be marked by an unhealthy striving for the need of control, for the need of power. And, and, and what that does is it leads you to idolatry because in your heart, what you're saying is, I need to be in control. I, I need to have power over this. I need this in my life. Maybe it's, I need my husband or wife to be this. I need my amount of savings to be this. I need to be thought of highly in this way so that I can be this. My church needs to serve me in this way or be influenced by me in this way. I need my career to be this. I need the world events and this thing to blow over before I can have hope and joy, before I can actually worship God and be thankful. It's not a word worship is derived from the two words, worth and ship. It's saying what you worship is what you ascribe worth to. So can you worship God by faithfully obeying him and considering it a joy and a privilege to do so? What would it look like for you as an individual, maybe you as a household even, as a couple to walk in faithful obedience to the Lord and surrender to him wherever you're at this morning. To be a people that are marked with thankfulness and praise to God for all that he's doing in your life, maybe even collectively for all that he's doing in our church. What would it look like for us to be a, a people of praise and thankfulness, of complete and utter surrender to God, surrendering control, influence, power, security, striving for our own plans and just say, well, we just wanna worship the Lord. 
because the Lord's steadfast love endures forever. There's a word that most of us shudder at the thought of endure endurance, like nobody wants to have to endure because it means, it means going through whenever you want to give up, whenever it's difficult, whenever it's hard, but it says God's steadfast love endures. It endures over every mistake, over every sin, over every cause to worry, over every poor choice that we make, over every reason to harbor bitterness or resentment or even unforgiveness towards other people. What would it look like for us to be able to say God is our refuge He's our deliverer because we fear the Lord. For us to enter this place of refuge, protection, peace, this is what we have to do. We have to come and submit ourselves to God. We have to fear the Lord because to fear the Lord and experience his steadfast love, here's something else that we're gonna see now is that we have to understand that God is righteous. David had just said, God hasn't given me over to death, and so his heart and his mind is cast out. I want to be in the presence of God. I, I want to live this worshipful praise and joyful and, and, and life of thanksgiving. Look at what he says in verse 19. He says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. Here he's saying, I, I desire to come into God's presence. I desire to worship him. I desire to have this kind of life. I desire to like, open up the gates that I may go in and worship. Now David here is probably talking about a physical place, a place of worship to come into the presence of God as they did in Old Testament times. But, but it's the same for us. We can come and we can worship God today, but there's just one really big problem. It says that the righteous shall enter. The fact that God is in control and that he's all powerful and that he's good means that God is, will always do what is right. It means that he's righteous, he's good, he's pure, he's holy, he's just, and because of that, he's righteous. And so here's the only way in which we truly get to experience God, how we can come to God, be intimately in communion with God, be in relationship with him, is to be righteous before a righteous God. And here's where we see that a, a God who is more than a God that just meets physical needs, more than a God that just calms some anxieties, more than a God that just gets us through some difficult times, more than a God who just has our feelings at heart. He's a God who has come to make us righteous. Because God is a God who each and every one of us are accountable to. Here's where we see a reality we must embrace to truly fear the Lord. He is righteous and we are not. He is holy and we are not. He is sinless and we are not. And the Bible tells us that God abhors sin. He hates it. Sin is evil. It's an offense to God. It's the exact opposite of who he is. It's wrong. And so God will deal with sin. Romans 3.10 tells us that, talking about ourselves, it says that no one is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23 20, tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, it tells us that the wages of our sin is death, it's destruction, it's judgment. The Bible tells us that in our sin, that we are enemies of God, that we are, that we are destined for his wrath, his wrathful judgment because our rebellion against him deserves an, an eternal punishment. The reason it's an eternal punishment of great consequence is because we sin against an eternal God of the greatest significance. Let me explain it to you this way. The kids, maybe if you're watching this, sin against your mom or your dad, tell him you cleaned your room when you didn't. You, you may go without dessert. You may have to go back to your room and clean it again. Sin against your boss at work though, steal some company time, cut some corners. You may lose a paycheck or get suspended. Sin against the government, though, like fudge your taxes, commit fraud against them, you're probably going to jail for a long time. 
in many ways the same sinful act, but vastly different consequences because of the nature of the one sinned against. Listen, all of our sin is first and foremost a sin against God. David in Psalm 51, look it up sometime, he, he comes with a confession before God after committing adultery with another woman. And you could say, well, he sinned with her, he sinned against other people, but David's confession to God in Psalm 51, verse three says this, I know my transgressions and sin are ever before me. And then he says this to God, against you only God have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He sees his sin, he sees it as an offense before a holy God, and he realizes God is completely blameless in his judgment against me. And this is what we all have to understand to actually have a true fear of the Lord. A fear of the Lord that in the best of ways, then when we understand and we realize and we're convicted of that, will, will lead us to a place of transformation. Because as David confronts this real, terrifyingly uncomfortable truth that he's guilty before an all-controlling, all-powerful, righteous God who should righteously condemn him for eternity, we see God who is then rich in grace and mercy because he has done something incredible for us. And that's our fourth and last point this morning is, this, is that we see that God is merciful. Look now in Psalm 118, what he says. Verse 21, he says, I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. Verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, if you know your Bible or have been following Jesus for a while, those words should be familiar to you because in Mark chapter 12, Jesus uses these words. He's teaching a parable of how Jesus, how he's gonna come and how he'll be forsaken, he'll be rejected, he'll be beaten, he'll be given over to the hands of man as a son of God and be put to death and this will happen so that God can, can pour out his wrath upon him. And this is at the heart of the gospel, the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that, speaking about Jesus, it says God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that through him, Jesus, we could inherit the righteousness of God. What that is, is incredible grace and mercy of God, that God would send his son, Jesus, and Jesus as the eternal God would take the eternal punishment and weight of our sin, all of my sin and your sin, upon himself. He would suffer at the hands of man while he was really taking the wrath of God. He would experience pain, rejection, humiliation, cut off from the Father. He would cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me while he was on the cross? Because it was on that cross that Jesus took the price that we deserve. It's been paid, our greatest need has been met. Our greatest danger and sickness we've been saved from, the power of sin and God's righteous wrath, Jesus took our place. And now we read that Jesus rose from the dead to life, showing and proving he's, he's all powerful over the schemes of Satan and man, he's in control, he's seated at the right hand of God and he's there interceding for us. He's representing us, he's our advocate, he's declaring us as righteous. Romans 8.1 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, you, you better say amen to that if you're sitting on your couch, okay? This is, the, this is the foundation of the gospel. In those times in architecture, the cornerstone that he's talking about here, it was the foundational piece that all, that everything, if you were building a building, you would put that cornerstone down and then everything on the building would be built from that place get the cornerstone wrong and, and the whole building will fall over, get it right, and it lasts. Jesus says, I'm the cornerstone. This is what you need to build your life upon. And people will reject this, reject Jesus, think it's worthless. Really, that's where you're putting your hope. That's what you're putting, building your life upon. 
That's why Jesus said, the one that people reject, I'm the most foundational, I'm the cornerstone. That God has declared us righteous through the precious blood of Jesus Christ, that if we confess our sin and give it to him, that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. That we can be brought into relationship with God. And we, we have a, a, a right fear of the Lord when we realize he's at his mercy, but then it brings us to this beautiful transformation as we realize that we call upon the name of Jesus and he saves us. That's why in verse 21 he says, I thank you that you've answered me and you've become my salvation. Verse 23 says, this is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous. This is the day that the Lord has made. He says, let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is what happens when you get the gospel that God in his grace has provided his son, Jesus, to save you, to redeem you, to transform you, to, get, to, to declare you righteous and holy, and he gives you his Holy Spirit, and you're made alive with Christ. <laughs> Mind-blowing, heart-renewed, like, of course I can worship. Of course I can worship him today with no matter what is going on in my life. That's what it means to be transformed. You're birthed, you're given new life by the power of the Holy Spirit and you're drawn to worship God, to surrender to him and it's a joy and it's a privilege to do so. So are you a people that are marked with calm surrender? Do you bring everything that you have and surrender it to Christ and in that are you finding a joy in the Lord? Are you experiencing his steadfast love? Are we a people who can worship through the storms of uncertainty? David's able to say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I can remember as a three or four-year-old kid standing up at the front of our church and singing that little kid song. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord... I know you know it. I know some people are probably singing along right now. Okay, beauty of online church. If you're like the introvert, it's like, okay, I didn't have to join in on that. Here's the thing though, I think we sometimes we just make that that's all it is. It's just a cute little thing to raise our kids by or, or a nice little truth for us. But no, David pans this psalm when he's thinking back to life was a raging fire of thorns, bees all around me. Like my life was in complete distress, but he's able to fix his eyes upon God. And he says, this is the day that the Lord has made. I can rejoice and be glad in it. Like, if anybody had reason to have some PTSD, it was David. And I don't even say that to be funny. Think about the bloodshed, war, like uncertainty that that guy experienced in his life. But he's able to cast his eyes upon Jesus and find steadfast love. Think of the sinful choices he made. Uh, and he could have just resigned himself in his own self-pity and grief and, and written himself off and said, I'm a guy that's too messed up. God would never use me. But he got his eyes off himself and he got his eyes onto God. And he realized God is merciful. And listen, as we do that, as we get our eyes off ourselves and get our eyes onto Jesus, we understand that God is a God who loves us, who desires us. Look at what he's able to go on and say. He says, save us, we pray, O Lord. We pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. He says, bind the festal sacrifice with cords up, uh, up to the th horns of the altar. He's talking about worshiping. He says, you are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. And he finishes the same way he started. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Listen, as we finish, as we close this morning, I just want to ask you two simple questions. As you've heard this message, what is God calling you out of? What's he calling you to let go of today? Is it control of your life, control of your marriage, control of wanting to hide, hide out and just hoard up and live in fear? Is he calling you out of a self-centered life of idolatry? Maybe he's calling you out of worshiping at the feet of image, success, accomplishments, beauty, acceptance. And the second thing I want to ask you is what's he calling you to? 
Because the heart of the gospel is, is, is repent. Turn from your old way, turn from your old sinful ways, turn from the things that you're tempted to build your life upon and, and come and surrender to God. Commit your life to Jesus. Put your hope and your trust and your faith in him. And I think we get lost in the middle sometimes and, and we just kind of think and we feel convicted and say, well, I'm gonna stop doing some things. And then we're just left in the middle and all that is is we've just had some behavior modification and that's just dead religion and who wants that? God calls us out of our own sinful way to actually repent, surrender, give our lives to Christ, confess our sin and our desperate need of Jesus. And as we do that, God gives us his Holy Spirit. He transforms us. He births new life in us. And then he calls us to live a life of worship and faithful obedience because Jesus said he came that we could have life and have it to the full in this life and then for eternity evermore with God. So what's he calling you to? Maybe those are two questions you want to uh, you think about more, even discuss more as a family, maybe as friends as you've got together, maybe you wanna jump on and connect with somebody on the internet and just, and just talk about those things. What, what, what's God calling you out of and what's he calling you to? Could it be that he's calling you to experience his steadfast love of Jesus for the very first time where you could repent and follow him? Maybe you've already done that. Maybe he's calling you out and just exposing some things that you've been building your life upon again and he's calling you back to the sweet, gracious, merciful love of the Father. And in case you wonder, is this really for me? Could God do this? I, like, do I get to experience that? How sure can I be of this? Romans 8.32 says this. He did not spare his own son, but he gave himself up for us. How then will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God desires for us to worship him, to be in relationship with him, because he desires us to experience his steadfast love. And it, we get to experience that when we have a true and a good and a healthy fear of the Lord. My hope and my prayer is that this has been an encouragement to you today that has stirred up your affection and your heart uh, and your wanting of worship to the Lord. I hope it's also challenged you though. So uh, let me pray as we finish this morning. Heavenly Father, God, I pray. God, I thank you for who you are. God, thank you that you are a God who is in control, who is all-powerful, who is righteous, but you're also a God who is merciful to us, that you call us into relationship with you through your son, Jesus, that we get to experience this steadfast, never-changing, certain, true, transforming, steadfast love of you. God, thank you that it's not of our own doing, it's not of our works, we don't earn it, but it's you, God, it's your work, and God, I pray that it would be marvelous in our eyes so that we could truly be people that say, no matter what this day, no matter what this life, no matter what this season holds for us, that we could say, this is a day the Lord has made. God, you are the creator, we are the created, and we get to worship you and surrender to you and come to your feet each and every day, and when we do that, we get to experience this steadfast, never-changing beautiful, awesome love of God. God, thank you for who you are. Amen. Amen.